0: So in David White, author and poet David White's book, Crossing the Unknown Sea, he tells this story about his mother. His mother grew up in Ireland, and when she was just 12 years old, she had the most amazing singing voice. And so David White's grandmother, his mother's mother, said, you have to enter the singing competition. You are sure to win it. You have the most amazing voice. And at 12 years old, David White's mother was uh, reluctant on the night of the singing competition to leave because her mother was in bed and had fallen sick and she didn't want to go. But her mother urged her, she said, No, you have to go. You have the most amazing voice. You have to go and sing. And so even though she didn't want to leave her mother's side, she went to the singing competition, and when she, when it came her time to to step out onto that stage, she sang a very familiar song in Ireland called A Mother's Love is a Blessing, and there was just a palpable sincerity to her song, and so when she finished the song, there was an odd silence in the room, followed by a thunderous applause. And sure enough, just as her mother had predicted, she won that singing competition. And she was so eager to get home, she raced home, she hurried as quickly as she could back home. And as she entered the house to share the good news, she could just feel the hushed silence in the room. And she came to find out that her mom had died while she was singing. So David White talks about how he and his sisters, they grew up hearing this, song, hearing this story from their mom. And every time she would tell this story and relay this story of how her mother, their grandmother, had died while she was singing, they would always say, Mom, can you sing us that song? Sing us that song that you sang that day. And David White said they never could convince her. that she always said, No, I can't, I can't ever sing that song again. And in all of his years growing up, he, he never heard her sing that song. She, she wouldn't sing that song again. And I wonder if you have ever made a commitment to something out of your own pain, out of your own hurt. Have you ever said, I'll never do that again? I'll never try that again. I'll never apologize to him again. Have you ever made a commitment out of your pain? Richard Rohr says, you know, if if we don't allow God to transform our pain, we will surely transmit it, our pain. And today we're wrapping up this series called guided we've been talking about what does it mean to be guided by the holy spirit what does it mean to be guided by the voice of love the voice of god and we've been talking about the relationship between good questions and discernment and being guided by god's spirit Good question asking and good decision making in our lives. They often go hand in hand. How important it is whenever we're faced with a decision of any consequence, where we're saying, God, what would you have for me to do here, whether that's vocational or financial or educational or relational, whatever it may be, to pause and to prayerfully ask a few questions, to create a little space to ask these questions before the Lord in prayer. We've been encouraging everybody in this series to memorize Proverbs 27, 12, which simply says this, the prudent or the wise people, they see danger and they take refuge. But the simple people, the naive people, the people who fall for anything, what do they do when they see danger? They keep right on going and they pay the penalty. The old King James Version says they suffer for it the wise ones they see danger they take refuge but the simple they see it they keep right on going and they pay the penalty so we've considered these five questions we can ask whenever we're making a decision we can ask these prayerfully before god the first one is just am i being honest with myself and we can add that little tag really because the easiest person to deceive is the person in the mirror The hardest person to lead is the person in the mirror. The second question is just what story do I want to tell? It's kind of the legacy question. It's this idea that right now you and I are faced with decisions, but someday decisions that are in real time right now, they're just going to be a story that you tell around the campfire or people tell about you around the campfire. So what story do you want to tell? What story do you want them to tell? The third question is kind of this question of our conscience. It's the question, is there a tension right now in this decision? Is there a tension that deserves my attention? Can I pause long enough to find out, like, what's this tension about? Maybe it's still a yay, maybe it's a nay, but to pause long enough to go, what is the tension? What is my conscience saying right now? And then last week, Tim talked about what is the wise thing to do. And, and he just talked, he reminded us that a decision can be not wrong, and also not wise at the exact same time. So what is the wise thing to do? And then today, our fifth and final question for the series is simply this. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? The truth is, in this final question, it requires a level that is both clarifying and terrifying at the same time we often fail to sing that song of love because of our own pain, because of our own hurt, because of something that is standing in between us and what it would mean to love in a given moment. Why don't you call your estranged brother? Why won't you apologize to her? Why don't you stop and help when help is needed? Often it's our own pain or our fear or our busyness or our distraction that stands in between us and the song of love. And the way of Jesus asks us to pause and ask, what would love require of me? The truth is, not only do we fail to love, if we're honest with ourselves, not only do we fail to love, we also love to hate. We have such uh, sophisticated and subtle ways of going about our hate. We disguise our hate. We deceive ourselves into thinking, this isn't really hate, this is actually love. But let's be honest, feminists can hate men. Liberals can hate conservatives. Activists can hate rich people. Family values folks can hate the LGBTQ plus community. Victims can hate perpetrators. Pro-lifers can hate pro-choicers and vice versa. We justify our hate. We disguise our hate. In our minds, it's not even hate. It's necessary. It's deserved. It's very well disguised hate. And even in our deepest divisions, the way of Jesus would be for followers of God in the way of Jesus to pause and say, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? You know, throughout Jesus' ministry, he hinted through his parables, through his stories, through his words, he hinted that something new was on the horizon, I mean, many people were hoping that he was bringing about political reform. That's what they thought. And Jesus had something very different in mind, something way bigger, something way more inclusive than that. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that final visit, there were crowds lining the streets to welcome him. Their expectation was political. It was rooted in a desire for power, a desire for more power. And Jesus, they're lining the roads to see him. I mean, Jesus had their attention, but they did not understand at all what his intentions really were. And even Jesus's closest friends were conf- confused about his intentions. Right up until the very end, they're jockeying for positions of power. They're ready for a revolution so on the night of Jesus' arrest, Jesus finally you know made his intentions to his followers clear. He spelled it out for them. On that final night they were together, he spelled it out in words that, for many of us, they've become so familiar, they just kind of make little impact on us. I mean, we most of us don't doubt they're true. We know Jesus said them. It's just they don't really, like, rock us back on our heels. They don't send us running to our neighbor, to our family member, to our spouse with an apology on our lips. They just sort of pass by. In fact, when I read these words of Jesus in just a moment, you might be tempted to be like, oh yeah, that again, which is unfortunate because the death of Jesus on the afternoon after he spoke, the, after he spoke these words, that afternoon, later, was this illustration of the words themselves and how central they are. His death later would be an illustration of these words. They really represent the epicenter of what it means to follow God in the way of Jesus. The very core. I mean, these are the words about what the kingdom of God looks like on earth. And later in the scriptures the apostle paul says in galatians like the only thing that matters at all is the, are these words in 1 corinthians he says if we don't get this right it doesn't matter what else we get right? Because there's nothing deeper, there's nothing more profound, there's nothing that has more potential to change everything than these words. And, and these are the words that Jesus said, a new command, I give you, love one another. A new command, I give you, love one another. Now wait a minute, that, that wasn't really new. We have the golden rule. But Jesus wasn't really through with his words yet. He wasn't commanding them to feel something. He was actually commanding them to do something. And what came next in his words trumped the golden rule itself. He said this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So in that moment, Jesus is establishing himself as the standard for love. The standard against which everything else in our lives can be evaluated and measured. Like maybe you have heard it said, believing is all that matters. But Jesus would say to you, if you're going to participate in my kingdom, loving as I have loved is what matters. Doing for others, you know, what one hopes that the other would do for them. In a sense, Jesus is like, that is so last century. That is so old covenant. Jesus is telling his closest friends and his followers to do unto others as he, Jesus, had done to them. And you just think of the very personal relationships around the table when Jesus said that and what they would have been thinking because when we read these words now, we we kind of think to ourselves, oh, Jesus saying, as I have loved you, so you love one another. And we think of the cross. But that day, they wouldn't have thought of the cross yet. It hadn't happened yet. They would have thought back over the previous three years You just think Jesus could have, like, went around the table and addressed each of his apostles one by one. I mean, you could just imagine Jesus saying to Matthew, maybe you have a picture of Matthew if you've been watching The Chosen. Just imagine Jesus saying, like, Matthew, remember what you were up to when we first met? And you could just imagine Matthew being like, yeah, I was working for Rome from home. I was pretty much like a government-sanctioned thief. I had bodyguards, and very good people would keep their distance from me. And you can imagine Jesus saying to Matthew, remember what I said to you on that afternoon. And Matthew like, yeah, you invited me to follow you. Nobody had ever done that before. I mean, when people thought of me following them, they would run home as fast as they could. And you can imagine Jesus saying, Yeah, Matthew, now you, you go. You extend that same grace, that same forgiveness, that same mercy to everyone you meet for the rest of your life. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. You could just imagine Jesus going around the table, it's personal. To each person, one by one. And then Jesus said this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's like Jesus is pointing to this one specific thing, the way of love. As the thing that is to be the identifying marker of this new following, the church. The way of love is to be the defining marker of this new movement. His new, command, his new command is to be the governing ethic, the standard against which all behavior is measured. And of course, it stood in stark contrast to the religious systems of that time. Because back then, the litmus test for a person's devotion to God, for a person's faith... Was, hey, don't forget your goat. Don't forget your sacrifices. Make sure you're at all the festivals. Be sure to uh, say your prayers. This was how you evidenced your devotion to God, to an invisible, distant, far off God. And now in Jesus, following God would not be about looking for ways to get closer to God who dwelled like up there, out there, somewhere distant. Following Jesus would be about demonstrating their devotion to God by putting the people next to them in front of them. Their devotion to God would be seen by putting the people around them before them. And in this new commandment, authentic Jesus followers would not authenticate their love for God by looking up They would authenticate their love for God by looking around, by loving the people around them. So a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Which brings us to our fifth and final question. What does love require of me? Do you want to say that with me? What does love require of me? It's the question that paves the path to relational health It lays the foundation for mutually beneficial and satisfying relationships. It's a question all people can ask, but it's a question followers of God in the way of Jesus must ask. It's clarifying. It can be terrifying. It ought to be the question that kind of is before us or stands guard over us, over our words, our posts our purchases, our choices. It should be almost like a guidepost, a sign, a lighthouse, a compass that helps us to navigate just the the tremendous complexities of life. It ought to inform how we date, how we parent, how we grandparent, how we serve as a boss or a manager, how we coach. It should kind of form a perimeter around what we say, what we don't say, what we do, and what we don't do. It's like when you are unsure of what to say or do, maybe you could pause and say, what does love require of you? We we have held more funerals in this sanctuary in the last three years. I'm pretty sure than we did in the previous 10. Like, we've had more here in the last three years than in the previous 10 as, as a church. And uh, something I've been noticing is that when you attend a memorial service for a dead friend, <laughs> what you find is that the list of his or her accomplishments It moves approximately no one in the room. Okay, that's what they did. You know when the atmosphere in the room really starts to quicken? You know what really moves us? You know what the moment is when, like, you find your eyes brimming with tears? It's when his daughter speaks of the many things he loved. It's when someone stands up and talks about the affections of his heart. That is what moves us. What he loved most moves us. It's almost like in the final measuring moment of a life, the identity of a person, it's remembered by what they loved. It's summed up in their affections. All the rest, it's like chaff that's blown away. And death comes eventually. It taps each of us on the shoulder. In turn, it does. And it asks us in that moment like to encapsulate a life. And the way we do that is by what we've loved. Which is why the prudent and the wise, they pause. And they ask, what does love require of me? With the end in mind, we ask, what does love require of me? You know, David White, he... uh, he grew up never hearing his mother sing that song. He heard the story, but she never sang. And then when she was old and frail, they were having drinks one night over dinner with like a new friend, somewhat of a stranger. And this woman shared that she had lost her mother. And David White's mother, who understood from a very young age that life orphans all of us in time, and she had that sort of natural empathy, she heard this other woman's story. And in that moment, she knew what that was like. And so she shared, yeah, you know, the story that her own mother had died while she was singing. And this near stranger says to her, would you sing that song for me that you sang that day? (laughs) To David White's shock, she sang. After 70-some years of not sharing that song, she sang a mother's love is a blessing. And I just wonder in that moment, you know, like, Did she know what love required of her? Did she know that by entering into another's pain and not allowing her own pain and hurt to stand in the way of that entry, that therein would be both of their healing? He, of course, wished he could call his sisters in that moment. But after 70 years, She sang again. It was probably in love and for love that she sang. So, my friends, may you rise up beyond your own hurt and pain to sing the song of love that would be yours to sing. Would you find a way before God? to rise above the hurt and pain that you've experienced to do what love would require of you today. Let's pray as we close. Well, Lord Jesus, I thank you for that song, that your love is extravagant, that it doesn't make sense. And as we receive it and bask in it and learn from it, I pray that you would teach us what love requires of us, God, would you make us people who have a spontaneous love for our enemies. That it might be extravagant like your love. That it might not make sense. But that it might surely and truly be from heaven, be from you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. And everybody said, Amen.